Uh, if you have your Bibles, we are in 2 Timothy. Uh, we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, verses 6 to 8. Uh, flip there in your Bibles. Um, and I'm going to regale you of my time at the soccer field uh, so far this season. Um, my son is in soccer, uh, a little seven-year-old, so he's a superstar, obviously, and uh, my life is revolves around... No. It's interesting, though, when you're at the soccer field, there's, there's two... Uh, there's two sides of the extremes of, of soccer parents at the field. You have on, on one side, you're already laughing, good. Uh, on one side, you have uh, parents who are, are just excited that their kids are there, right? They're, they're standing upright. That is a win. They're happy. Uh, they could be picking their nose, and they're still just proud that their kid is on the field having fun, right? As long as their kid is out there having fun, they're proud, and there's the other extreme, right? The other extreme is the expectation that this kid is going to make it into Major League Soccer somewhere, right? I mean, th- this kid is going to be the next big thing. He's going to be paid. So as a parent, my job at the soccer field is to scream at you nonstop, <laughs> is to tell you all the things you should be doing, it is to encourage you to run harder, kick better, do more. If you don't have the ball, go, go get it. Like, what, what do you do? Like, it's, it's amazing. One set of parents is just happy that their kids are out there. And one set is going, you're not going to be scouted if you do this. We come to the, the close of, of Paul's letter to, to Timothy. And I'm going to be honest, if, if Paul's one of those parents, he's definitely on this extreme. He has spent three and a half chapters telling Timothy, run, work, don't give up, keep going, don't let uh, false beliefs and doctrines into the church, don't allow for for babbling and loose talk, Don't, don't allow for false doctrine to make its way into your life, into the life of the church. See, see, Paul is the spiritual father who's not just happy that Timothy's showing up. Paul is the kind of spiritual father who wants Timothy to succeed. Who, who, who wants to see Timothy run the race and fight the good fight and keep hold of the faith. And in our passage, what we're going to see is, is, is he's going to turn the camera on himself. And he's going to say to Timothy, he's going to say, now look at me. Look to my life, my example. Imitate me as I have lived a life of obedience, of worship to God. And that's exactly what Paul is going to say to us today. Paul's going to say, guys, you can, you can look at me and see that, well, my, my time has come. I'm going to die soon. My, my time has come. But you know what? My calling is complete. I've done everything that God has asked me to. I've I've run, I've fought, I've held on to the faith. And now my salvation is secure. My hope today is that we would hear Paul's message and that we would think through, well, what about my time? What about my calling? What's my assurance of faith? So if you have your Bibles, uh, flip them open. Uh, 2 Timothy 4 verses six to eight. It says this. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. 
I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearance. The first thing that we're going to see is, is Paul saying, my time has come. Paul knows that his, his death is, is imminent. It's been throughout the letter. This is possibly one of the last times Paul is, is writing to, speaking to, able to, to talk to his protege, his son in the faith. He knows that death is imminent. The return of Christ is imminent. Some, something is going to happen soon. I don't have much time. And to show the, the earnestness of his message, the, the urgency in which he speaks, he uses these, these two pictures. He used this idea of being poured out as a drink offering and, and the time of my departure has come. This, this picture of a ship pulling up anchor, uh, of casting off the ropes, of being ready to move out of port or out, out of, out of a, a, a harbor to, to go on to the next trip. Paul's saying, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to go. And it's not the first time that Paul has used this idea of, of a drink offering, of, of showing that this... This life that he has lived, it's, it's almost complete or, or he's willing to even pour his life out unto death to serve God. Philippians 2.17 says this, even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. Now, now, most of us, when I say drink offering, we probably don't have a, a great idea of what it is. It, does the drink offering help us understand this, this metaphor that Paul is, is talking about? Well, it's, it's written about throughout the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. There's different times where uh, different drink offerings were poured out with different sacrifices, uh, di- different things that, that God called his people to do. Numbers 28.7 says it like this. It's drink offering shall be a quarter of a hin for each lamb. In the holy place, you shall pour out a drink offering of strong drink to the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't clarify what Paul is, is saying. <laughs> Paul, are you the strong drink part? Are, are you the quarter of a hint? Like, what is it that you're trying to signal with this? Well, I think what Paul is, is trying to signal with this idea of his life being a drink offering is that this drink offering went along with the main sacrifice. Jesus is the main sacrifice. Uh, Paul just accompanies it. His life is lived out in such a way that it's an act of, of worship. The drink offering and the other sacrifices would have been offered morning and night, especially during festivals, it would have been more often. that This drink offering went along with it. And so this, this act of, of continued worship is what Paul has in mind. It's, it's not so much maybe the, the significance of the drink offering, but what the, the nature of what the drink offering was a part of, what it, what it pointed to, worship. Paul is, is saying, the, the end of my time has come. I'm being poured out as a drink offering. It, it, it's the end for me, but it's all an act of worship. I've been prepared my whole life for it, and now that I'm at the end, I'm ready to finish well. And Paul even and tells us in, in Romans 12, 1 to 2, specifically this, that his life was supposed to be worshipped, that our lives are supposed to be worshipped. This is what it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world 
but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What Paul is trying to get across to to Timothy, to us, is that every moment of our life is meant to be used for worship. Every moment and every breath, all the energy that we expend is supposed to be for the honor of God, for his glory and his praise, for who he is and for what he has done. We're supposed to live in such a way that reflects the glory of God in our lives. Paul's view of of this life, that there's nothing better than to be that object of worship, whether that's in life or in death. We see in, in Paul's life when we look at his letters, when we, when we look at his missionary journeys, everything that he did, we see that he was used in every way to make disciples, to, to, to share the gospel and to bring people to know the good news of Jesus. It was to plant churches, to write scripture. His whole life was used for God's glory. And it all came from a place of him seeing Jesus clearly and, and trusting in him alone for salvation. My time has come. Paul's death is is imminent. He knows it and he wants to use every moment he has, even now at the end of the letter, begging Timothy, when you come, try to come to me soon. Bring my cloak, bring bring the the scrolls, bring the parchment. Please come as soon as you can. I I still have more work to do. I, I still have more to accomplish. To the very end, he's pushing to be used as an object of worship. The average uh, life expectancy in Canada right now is, is 82, 83 years old. I'm, I'm 38, uh, which means, if my math is correct, I got about 44 to 45 years left. So I'm not even like midlife crisising yet. I got lots of time. That seems like a long way away. 45 years seems, seems like a lot of time. It seems like I have a lot of time to figure out what I'm doing or, or, or how I'm living. It, it seems like maybe I don't have to take things super seriously now because with 45 years left, I'll be more mature, I'll be wiser, I'll, I'll be able to get my stuff figured out as I go. And it's even, it's even a bigger time you know, gap if, if I look at well, my grandparents. I've got grandparents who are 91, 91, and 96. And again, if, if my math is correct, you can correct me later, that's 53 to 58 more years. That seems like a lot of time. It, it seems like I don't have a shortage of time. And maybe you, you're looking at your family, you're looking at uh, your age, you're looking at what's going on around you, and you think you have a lot of time too. But then I remember, well, I, I had a dad who died at 54. Well, that's only 16 years. That seems like a lot less time to do all the things that God has called me to do it seems like a lot less time to actually live out this obedient, worshipful life. Have I passed on to my kids my love for Jesus? Have, have I discipled them and, and shown them how they should live? Have, have I served the church in the way that I should? Have I lived a life that is ready yet to meet Jesus face to face? It makes me wonder, what urgency am I living life with? What am I putting off that I should be doing now? Most of us understand this in different aspects of our lives. 
I've, I've got a hot water tank at home. That's from 2008. That's a 15-year-old hot water tank, and that thing is starting to leak. It is imminently going to go. I gotta, why am I not taking my spiritual life seriously, though? What urgency am I living with? For Paul, every moment was a chance to love Jesus. Love Jesus by serving the church, spreading the gospel, and knowing that one day he would see his Savior face to face. What expectation do you have for the life that you've been given? Have you got lots of time? See, some of us, and I don't mean this to to, to sound judgmental, I mean this to sound convicting. Some of us have served in the church faithfully. We've taught, we've, we've cleaned, you've ushed, you've been elders and deacons, you've even worked in churches, you've, you've preached, you've taught, you've, you've led. But some of us have come to the place where maybe we're not, we're not needing to put in as much time. There, there's other things that, that, that we can do with our time. You know, I, got, I got vacations to go on, I got grandkids, I've got work to take care of. There's, there's other things that matter. I've, I've served enough, it's time for me to sit back and there's other people who should be taking the reins. It's their time. I'm going to sit back. But my question, honestly, is then who's discipling the leaders that are supposed to take over? Who, who, who's leading the people who have not yet led? Helping them to know how to counsel and to disciple others and to, to lead and to teach. Lynette has a number of women that she would love if they would lead and they would serve and they would disciple and they would counsel more table leaders, people that she can have train up these younger women. David was looking for, for table leaders for men's Bible study right up into the end. He would have loved to have one or two more people. I'm always looking for community group leaders who are, who are willing to, to train others and to build into others' lives. Sarah, even this morning, was down multiple teachers, and every single week she's looking for people who will teach our kids the gospel. You're needed. All all, all of us. You're not too young to lead, and you're not too old. What urgency are are we living with? We also have neighbors and coworkers and friends and family who are bound for hell, who don't know Jesus because we aren't sharing the gospel. You're needed. Time is short. In in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, uh, a book by uh, John Piper, uh, he he writes about, uh, if you haven't read it, go read it. It's free online. You don't even have to pay for it. You can just go and, and take it for free. But in it, he, he tells a story about uh, some missionaries who, uh, out serving uh, God, they're, they're, they're single ladies, they, they ended up dying in a car crash, and, and somebody says, oh, what, a, what a waste. I want to read you an excerpt that he responds to this. He says, I will show you how to waste your life. Consider a story from February 1998, an edition of Reader's Digest, which tells about a couple who took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when they were 59 and 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. At first, when I read it, I thought it might be a joke, a, a spoof on the American dream, but it wasn't. Tragically, this was the dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious God-given life, 
And let the last great work of your life before you give an account to your creator be this. I played softball and I collected shells. Picture them before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my shells. This is a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. Over and against that, John Piper says, I put my protest. Don't buy it. Don't waste your life. Church, you are needed. The body of Christ does not exist when only a few members are working. That's what leads to its death. That's what leads to it not being cared for and built up and presented to Jesus on the day of his return, pleasing in his sight. You are needed, both to the church and also to the lost world around us. What urgency are we living with? We should be living with the same kind of urgency we have when the Black Friday deal goes you know, online, <laughs> right? We, we rush. We, we know there's only so much time. What about the church? What about, what about the bride? What about the calling that you have received? How are you viewing your days? Do you have time to burn or does your heart burn to serve God? I know for me, often this world can feel like the only home I, I, I know and hold on to, the only thing I've ever known, the only you know, the comforts that I can, I can go out and grab and take a hold of. And yet, Paul's message to us, Paul's reminder for us is that this world is, is not our, our home, that this isn't where we end. That, that second picture that we get of uh, him saying that the time of my departure has come is, is him talking about that ship that is casting off and, and ready to go out to sea for a new journey. What, what he's really saying is the best is yet to come. A everything here, all, all the good things, the family and the friends, all that God has given us and created in this world that is to be enjoyed, it's not the best. It's not what we were made to enjoy Forever. Are you living with urgency that at any moment Christ could return or your death could be imminent? See, Paul tells us we're supposed to be living with this, this, this expectation that at any moment this could happen. And the reason that he's at peace, the reason that he doesn't have any regrets is because he knows, and this is the second point, my, my calling is complete. See, Paul has lived with so much urgency in his life that he has never just taken that time off. He's never, never taken the, the long vacation, the, the trip to Florida for 50 years, right? He, he has lived every moment of his life pursuing what God has given him. Paul's life has been one of obedience and, and, and he shows it with these three pictures in verse seven. I have, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And Paul is trying to tell us and, and show us that he has been loyal, he has been faithful, he has been hardworking, and he has not lost track of the gospel that he has been given through Jesus. And he wants Timothy to walk in the same way that he's walked, doing what God has saved him to do. For the glory of God and for the sanctification of the church, for the salvation of the world, we have to look at what we're dedicating our lives to. What, what, what is it that we're actually working towards? What is it that we're trying to complete with the days that we've been given and the energy that we have been given by God? 
The first picture that, that Paul gives is, I, I fought the good fight. When, when we look at scripture, when we look at the account of Paul's life, you look at a man who was willing to fight. He, he was willing to go toe-to-toe with, with Jewish leaders in every single church that he went to, in the, in the synagogues that he went to around the world. In, in Jerusalem, he was willing to go toe-to-toe with them. He was willing to go and, and share the gospel to to the governors and to, to the emperor. He was, he was willing to go toe-to-toe even with Peter when he thought that Peter had lost grasp on the gospel. He was willing to go toe-to-toe with people who hated the gospel and hated him and hated the message and wanted to put him to death. He's been beaten. He's been stoned. He's been in prison. He's been chased from town to town. He's been shipwrecked. He's been bitten by a snake. Some of these multiple times and yet none of them have stopped him from fighting the battle. He was saved for this fight, not saved from the fight. He was saved to do everything within his energy for what God had called him to do, whether it was good times or bad. And it's the second time that he's told Timothy to fight the good fight, to, to hold the faith. In, in 1 Timothy 6, 11 and 12, he says, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you have made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. For Paul, fighting the good fight it, it isn't just something that he gets to feel like he's been a good, a good soldier. The eternal life is on the line. Obedience to his master is on the line. For him, and we saw it earlier in, in 2 Timothy, death is better than faithlessness or denying Jesus. It's better to die fighting than to lie down and live. I fought the good fight, Timothy. Join me. Be willing to go toe-to-toe with the people who oppose our message, who oppose the gospel. The second image he gives is, I I finished the race. It's interesting to me that he says, I haven't won the race, but I I finished it. I, I completed the race that God gave me. I stayed the course. I endured all that it had to offer. I I stayed on the move all the way through to the finish line. I didn't find the park bench and take a nap. I I didn't find a restaurant and go for a nice lunch. I, I didn't quit when it got hard. I went all the way until the end. I endured everything that this life has to offer because it was worth it. It's interesting. I, I learned this week uh, about something called ultra marathons. Yes, ultra marathons are apparently a thing. People do this willingly. There's one ultra marathon. It's the longest in the world. Of course, I'm going to find this one. The course is 3,100 miles, 5,000 kilometers. Runners have to run around a city block in Queens 5,649 times. The runners have 52 days to complete that distance. They run from 6 till midnight, 6 a.m. until midnight, an average of 59.62 miles or 96 kilometers every day. I don't know why. (laughs) So you'd think 3,100 miles, there'd be some prize waiting for you at the end that's worth it, right? Right? The prize is typically a t-shirt, a DVD, or a small trophy. Not end, 
one of those three things. People are willing to run for a t-shirt 52 days, 3,100 kilometers, almost uh, 5,000 kilometers, sorry. What are we willing to run for the eternal life that God has set before us? What are we willing to do and, and, and to cast off, to flee from, to pursue in life? Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says this. This is the encouragement for us. This is what we should be running for and running from. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's a race worth running. We don't, we don't even know how long the race is or how long we have to run it, but it's worth, it's worth running. And it's even more worth running because we have a savior, a God incarnate who became man, who ran it for us, who, who showed us that he was willing to endure suffering to perfect us, to be the beginning and the end of our faith, the, the author and the perfecter, the, the one who would bring us home to the Father. And he calls us to run and to lay aside every weight and every sin that entangles. We have a far greater prize than any race could provide this side of eternity. And Paul's call to us is to run it. Use every day to move forward in your desire to be with Jesus, to love Jesus, to be like Jesus, to talk about Jesus, to surround yourself with people who help you know and love and be like Jesus, and to tell others about him too. This is the race that we've been called to run. But the, the, the race and the, the fight is for gospel purity. Paul finishes verse seven saying, I've kept the faith. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. But it's all about the faith, the thing that God has given me. Paul uses this term five times in 2 Timothy, 25 times outside of it. it he loved this term. 1 Corinthians 15, one to four tells us clearly what he meant. It says this, now I, remind, I would remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved. If you hold fast the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. What Paul is, is telling Timothy, what he's, what he's telling us is, you better hold fast to that. He's, he's warned Timothy throughout this whole letter and, and 1 Timothy, watch out for these men who are trying to come in and teach false doctrines. Watch out for all this, this stuff that is going to try and drag people away from faith in Jesus Christ alone. He says, I want you, Timothy, and I, I want us here to hold on to the belief that God humbled himself and became a baby boy, born of a virgin Mary in the town of Bethlehem that he escaped to Egypt and he came back and lived in the town of Galilee to fulfill all the prophecies made about his birth to point to the fact that he was the Messiah, the one who would come and save us. And this Jesus, as he grew, lived a perfect, sinless life, obedient completely to the Father in all he did. 
He taught the true law and showed us how we should live, what was required of us. It showed that it was impossible for us to do it by ourselves. And instead, he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. After being deserted and denied and betrayed by his disciples, he was beaten after being arrested. He was spat on, he was mocked, he was dressed up, he was hit, he was abused, he was stripped naked. He had to carry a cross up to a hill that he would die on, be hung for everyone to watch, to laugh at, to to ride, to, to, to mock endlessly. After he was taken down after his death, he was buried. Three days later, he rose again, showing that with his death, he defeated the power of sin, he defeated Satan, he defeated death. That, that his death was able to appease the wrath of God that we so justly deserved. That it, his death would remove the, the penalty of sin and that he would reconcile us with the Father. That, that after his time on earth, he ascended to heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father and that while everything is being put under his feet, he is there speaking a better word on our behalf to the Father than that we deserve. And that one day he's gonna return and he's gonna judge the living and the dead And those who have trusted him alone for salvation, who have cried upon him and said, save us, Jesus, by your death, he will welcome into eternal life. And those who have not will be sent away into hell. That's the gospel we have to hold on to. And there's no 21st century charlatan or, or ministry or pastor or anybody else who should be changing that message. There's nothing else that we should hold on to for hope and for peace for security of our salvation. How are you holding fast to the gospel? How how are you holding fast to the faith that you have received that has been passed down? How are you fighting for gospel purity, running the race each day, waking up to be like Jesus, loving him more and more each day? I'll be honest, Preparing the sermon stunk this week, yet again, when you have this hanging over your head that you have to tell people what they should be doing and and you see the many ways that you waste your own life. The the ways that you pick up your phone instead of the Bible. You, 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 You browse articles and read things that have really no worth for this life or the life to come. You can sit down at the end of the day because you're tired and you you watch TV. Throughout your day, there's times maybe that, like me, you find yourself just not doing anything and wondering, wait, wait where, where, where am I? How did I get here? <laughs> How are we fighting with our days for gospel purity? To hold on to the faith that has been given to us that gives us an assurance of faith. Paul is telling us that the time is sh- short. So, so live out the calling you've received. And then he points this, our third point, he says, because I know my future is secure and I want the same for you, Timothy, and I want the same for you, church. I just want to be clear, Paul's assurance of faith, the way this sermon has gone, Paul's assurance of faith is not in his work. Paul's assurance of faith that he'll receive the crown of righteousness, that he will, on the day of judgment, be with Jesus forever, is not because he's preached enough, not because he's written enough of the Bible, not because he's planted enough churches, he's converted enough people. His his assurance of faith is in none of those things. It's all in, in Jesus Christ alone, by faith, through grace. It's Jesus. But... 
His love for Jesus has made him want to put the effort and the work and the time and the energy into do all the things that his calling is. Why wouldn't you want to do this if you have such a great savior and, and such a wonderful, holy God who has welcomed us into relationship with him when we deserved death? Why, why wouldn't we want to respond to him with all the work and the energy and the time that we have? Why wouldn't we want our lives to be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God if we know that that's the only thing we'll be doing for eternity anyways? He wants Timothy to put his hope in that same thing and the call for us is the same, to commit ourselves to the one who can award to us on that day the crown of righteousness. This is what he says in verse eight. Henceforth, love that word, I had to look it up. It means from this point on. <laughs> Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day and not only to me but to all who have loved his appearing. The interesting thing about our passage is, is Paul uses three different tenses. In, in verse six, he, he says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. He, he, he's talking about this in the present tense. I'm ready, it's, it's imminent, it's, it's right now. But then in verse seven, he, he says, I have run the race, I, I have fought the good fight, I have held on to the faith. It's the past tense. And now he looks he looks forward. He's saying, with every part of my life, I know what I'm doing and, and I know my purpose. I, I, I know why God has saved me. And now I can look to get the crown of righteousness. Now, what, what is this? Well, I think from the, the text, from reading this through, from understanding it, it's an award. It, it's something that Jesus himself, the righteous judge, will give. It's something that can only be awarded by Jesus on the day of his appearing to the people who have loved him. And, and I think what it is, is it's a mark of the fact that we will be glorified completely, that all sin and all unrighteousness, all brokenness, everything will be removed from us and we will be reigning with Christ. I was talking about it this week with, uh, with Sydney and I just said, I, just don't, I don't think I can wrap my mind around the fact that Jesus promises me that I'll be a co-heir of everything with him for eternity. That I will reign with Christ forever. Not, not like the small little sliver, a, a co-heir of everything. There'll be no sin. There'll be no unrighteousness. I will be with Jesus face to face. But who is it that gets this crown? Only those who have loved his appearing. And I think that looks back to when Jesus was born and when he lived on earth. People who are not ashamed of Jesus, who have loved the work that he has done on our behalf, but also the people who look forward to his return. Like, like Paul, who, who are living expectantly, knowing that at any time it could happen. Because if, if we have loved his appearing, that he has done this great work for us and we know he's going to return then it means that we're going to live our whole lives in response to that. There's, there's no time that we just take a, a quick break from following Jesus, from wanting to, to be with Jesus, right? There's no time to lose. If we're living in awe of Jesus, that God has come to earth, 
How could we not use our whole lives to respond to the good news that Jesus saves us? It points forward really to, to Revelation 19, uh, 7 to 8. This is a, a passage that's talking about the, the, the supper of the, the bridegroom when, when Jesus and the church will be united. It says this, Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. See, what Paul is, is telling us in this passage, what, what our future hope is, is that Jesus has done all the work. Right? Philippians 2, 12 and 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who works in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. It's God who has done the work to save us. It's God who enables us to do the work. And yet, there's still a calling on our lives, like it says in Revelation 19, the, to make ourselves ready. There, there's work to do. It was granted to clothe herself with fine linen, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Paul can say with complete confidence, I know that I'm going to receive the crown of righteousness at the day of his appearing. And it's not because I've, I've done enough work, it's because I've trusted in Jesus, but my whole life shows and points towards that truth in my life. I've kept the faith, I've ran the race, I've fought the fight because I've loved Jesus and I've trusted him alone for salvation. If you're a Christian here today, my, my question, I guess, is what confidence do you have that your salvation is secure? Can you say with Paul, my salvation is secure. I know that when Jesus returns, I will get the crown of righteousness. Where does that confidence come from? What is it resting on? If you're not a Christian here today, my question is, what hope do you have for salvation? What, what about the afterlife? What, what happens after you die? What do you have to do that's enough to earn that, that, that eternal life, that, that grace, that, that, that thing? What work do you have to do? What, what, what do you have to say? I want to tell you about Jesus more and more because that's the only reason I have confidence today. This life is short. My calling is complete. My salvation is secure. Paul has no regrets at the end of his life. And I came across uh, an article this week. Um, There's a woman uh, named Bronnie Ware who wrote a book called The Top Five Regrets of the Dying, A, a Life Transformed by the Dearly Departing. There's a woman who worked in, uh, in palliative care units, and what she found over the years of working in there is that there was, there was five common refrains that people were making at the end of their lives. Re- regrets that they had, they wish they could have turned back the clock and done, done differently. And this is what they are. I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. I wish I hadn't worked so hard. I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. I wish I had stayed in touch with my friends. I wish I had let myself be happier. These earthly regrets are, are very real, and they're, they're sobering, aren't they? But they're not, they're not eternal. Eternal regrets are far more disturbing. When we stand before the righteous judge, what regrets will we have? 
we should let Paul be the one who's dying message to Timothy and to us be the one we listen to. Let's read our passage one more time. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. Church, what urgency does your life have? God's return and even your death is imminent. What are you holding fast to, running towards or fighting for? The only thing worth giving your life for is Jesus. And what hope do we have in life and death? Only those who have loved Jesus and responded with their whole lives can have assurance of salvation. That's my hope for us today. Would you pray with me? Jesus, my hope in my own life and and the people who are here listening is that we would be convicted. God, we would see where we're not living with urgency, where we're not clinging to the right things, where we're putting our hope in, in things that aren't the salvation through you. God, would you convict us of our time? Convict us of our loves. Convict us of the way we're living our lives and the, and the, the expectations we have on them. And Jesus, we, we want to be a church that every single member is, is pursuing you and loving you and discipling others. That is sharing the gospel with our, our neighbors and friends and family and coworkers that is living in such a way that, God, when we see you face to face, there is no regrets. God, there's nothing we wish we could have done differently because our lives were used as a living sacrifice for you, holy and obedient. God, would you help us and would you surround us? Even as our, our families and, and we drive home, God, would you help us to speak about this and talk about this and even put things into place to to help us pursue you more. God, change your hearts and help us to follow you and trust you and love you. We pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.